The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We are going to continue this week in our series, Holy Reflections. We're six weeks deep. Uh, This sermon series is centered around ideas of of God's design for singleness, sex, and relationships. Uh, We have thus far looked at singleness, uh, dating and courtship, kind of interchangeable terms depending on your conviction, uh, and various elements of sexuality through the lens of God's wisdom and the truth of his word. Now, there's a headline from this week that I could not wait to share with you guys because it's one of those things you're going to think I'm making up unless you saw it yourself. And it, it kind of falls right in line with what we're talking about. So apparently, somebody got an idea at Duke University to do a study, and there was, here, here's the results of the study. And I, this, I'm not making this up. You can go verify this. Don't do it right now while I'm preaching, but go check later. Make sure I'm not lying to you. This is the, this is the results of the study. Apparently, according to Duke University, for men, just men at this point, they haven't studied it for women, for men, uh, thinking about terminology, I'm trying to be careful here. So, um, frequent and pleasurable sex apparently is connected to a higher rate of belief in God. This is a Duke University study, and I'm not making it up. Now, I don't know if anybody here is maybe a Duke alumni or knows one that maybe could sneak this suggestion in for me. I just have the suggestion for like maybe a follow-up study. And my thought was if, if maybe we could reverse engineer that and maybe solve the mystery of why so many of the atheists that I meet are like really grumpy and frustrated. I'm thinking maybe what they've discovered about the reverse may have to do with why they tend to be so tense and upset. So uh, if anybody knows anybody at Duke or can get me a line in there, I just, I'd like to talk to whoever's ahead of that research. I, I don't know who funds this stuff, but it's amazing. And uh, it's 2016. YOLO, right? All right. This week, we're going to talk about marriage. Amen. Um, there is no shortage of books, articles, sermons, and other resources on the subject of marriage. Uh, as it is, it's a topic that matters greatly, and it has mattered greatly throughout history, and it's going to continue to. Um, our goal is not going to be to try to find some new insight that is going to magically unlock the perpetual bliss that many people believe should characterize a healthy marriage. Uh, the reason we're not going to do that is because our goal is not to sell a marriage book or seminar, all right? Our goal is to humbly approach the timeless wisdom of God's perfect word and anxiously expect to be encouraged, challenged, and changed for his glory in regards to these things, okay? So I didn't get a vision, and we're not probably going to hit something here that um, nobody's ever thought of before, but there's a lot of timeless wisdom in God's word that... um, Sometimes we overlook, and, and, but some of it is things that God's people have known for a long time, and, and sometimes we just forget about. So um, praise God, we're going to uh, trust that God's going to help us because uh, I think most of us understand to some degree that we need it. All right, so we're going to read Matthew 7. Did I tell you what verse? We're going to start in verse 24 together, and uh, we're going to read to verse 29, okay? Matthew 7, 24, here we go. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Praise God for his word. Uh, This mini parable right here, this is the way that Jesus ends his longest recorded sermon. Okay, so this is the Sermon on the Mount. He gets to the end of it. He ends it with this parable. So that's when he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, he's referencing all of what he had just preached, the longest sermon we have of his. So in chapters five, six, and seven, 
all in one sermon, he teaches on a whole range of subjects, okay? So those subjects include how to rejoice in persecution and difficulty, uh, how we relate to the world as his disciples, um, marriage and divorce, prayer and fasting, worry, uh, and how to make sound judgments, and, and there's even more in there. And so um, I think it's interesting that in verse 28 it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Uh, you know, I think if a preacher today pre- tried to preach on that many different things in one sermon, that might not be the response of the people. I don't know. Uh, just saying, hey, cut the preacher some slack. Okay, off we go. Um, so in this parable, right, uh, the house being built is our life and all of its details, right? So Jesus isn't really talking about uh, sound construction management skills here. What he's really talking about is when you, when you build this house upon the rock, he's talking about your life and this, the winds and storms that come. These are the difficulties that often happen in life. And so um, we, we are told that if, if, this, if our life is built upon the rock of Christ and his teachings, then it will withstand the storms and difficulties of life when they come. When they come, right? Can I get a witness in here and just let me know everyone's awake? Are storms and difficulties in life going to come? Is it an if or a when? That's a when, right? There's going to be some difficulty. That's going to happen. There's only a couple guarantees. That's one of them. So in thinking through this, right, I want us to all, we're going into a sermon here on marriage, right? So the, the, again, we've started each of these. Don't, there, there is just this human tendency that if, if I feel like a, a, a sermon is pointed towards a certain dynamic or, or people group, and I'm not in that people group, there's a tendency to sometimes check out. But what we need to realize is this, this applies to everybody to some degree because if you're just starting out in life, you will be, you'll be wise to heed God's wisdom as you begin to mark and lay out the foundation of your life, right? So just because we're talking about something you're not at yet doesn't mean this won't be helpful for you. Some of you have already begun to build this, this life, and, and what might need to happen is you might need to assess with new eyes what you've constructed so far. You know, maybe, maybe that thing needs to be, some parts need to be taken down and put back together based upon what it is we're going to see in God's word. Uh, and some of you might have been living in your proverbial house for a really long time, and uh, it might need some maintenance. So <clears throat> um, there, there's, there's nobody within the sound of my voice that the wisdom of God's word is not going to apply to today. Uh, and even if it wasn't the case that there was direct application for your life, of course, as disciples of Jesus, we're always looking to gain wisdom uh, to also love and help others with. Amen? Amen. So, no matter if you are single with no intention of marrying, single and want to be married, or if you're already married, it is vital for every follower of Jesus to understand God's design and intent for marriage. Because as we've discussed throughout this series, there are a lot bigger things at stake than just the outcome of your own life, all right? So our lives don't exist in a vacuum, and we've, we've looked at some of even the history of God's people and seen that if, if certain people were obedient or disobedient in this and such situation, then, then all of uh, redemptive history could have been different. So uh, we need to understand that we are part of what God's doing in the earth, and so our, our lives are not in an in a isolation chamber, okay? So this, it really, really matters. Uh, so just to get going here and some things for us to think about in light of where we're headed, marriage rates in America are the lowest at this point that they've ever been, okay? This is likely due to many factors, maybe, maybe a lot of complicated things, but there's, there's two big drivers that are undoubtedly a part of this, okay? So first is the millennial generation has seen the results of a large-scale departure from a biblical framework for marriage in our culture, and thus they have witnessed more divorces and more miserable marriages than many past generations have. And so for them, when they're polled, they're like, look, I don't see the point. It's, it, either it's, according to my experience, it's either ends in divorce or it's miserable, and so I just don't want anything to do with it. Okay, so that's part of it. Secondly, a major factor is the increase in societal acceptance of both sex outside of marriage and cohabitation outside of marriage has led to many people asking the question, what's the point of getting married? That's a major question on the minds of many people. And this question is logical when we think about the fact that much of the human race at this point has brought into, they've bought into the idea that our highest goal, 
should be the pursuit of personal happiness and fulfillment as defined by each individual, right? So most people have bought in, at least to some degree, the consumeristic mindset that the goal of each human is to pursue happiness the way they define it. And that's kind of, that's, we, we have some documents actually that say that's a God-given right. And that's a problem because happiness on my terms doesn't always lead to real happiness and joy. We need to understand that God has an opinion on these things and he's marked out a trail for us that leads to true joy and happiness. And sometimes when we let our compass be led by our own decisions and what we think is going to make us happy, sometimes if that's contrary to what God's word has already clearly stated, it always leads to pain instead of joy. And so we want to avoid that. Um, so the fact that each individual kind of is, is pursuing personal happiness and fulfillment, that, that's why... I'm, that's honestly why much teaching on the subject of marriage, even inside the church, ends up being focused on drawing principles out of the scriptures to try to improve the experience of marriage. It almost becomes kind of self-help marriage preaching, right? It oftentimes doesn't get down to motives and, and first causes and like ultimately what, what is God really doing here? A lot of times it's just let, let, let's pull a few principles out that will hopefully get you to be nicer to each other and thus have less fights and thus a slightly happier life. And, and we just we got to go deeper than that because if you just give people those principles and try to modify their behavior, but you don't get down to the motives and, 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 and get people to see it through the eyes and the lens that God is looking at it from, then you lose motivation to do those behavior modifications and, and the principles don't do you any good. Does that, does that make sense? you got to deal with the heart. That's why all the time Jesus is always going after what's going on in your heart. It's not just about what we do, but why we do it. The truth is the Bible does have a lot of wisdom in regards to human relationships because, dun da da God knows how they work best. Big surprise? No, right? So there is a ton of really helpful wisdom in the scriptures that we can apply. But if we don't get down to the foundation level and deal with what our lives and marriages are built upon, remember those verses? We will keep building beautiful structures on top of broken foundations and those are going to give way when the storms of difficulty and inconvenience come. And that's super frustrating, isn't it? To build a beautiful structure on top of a jacked up foundation, and then difficulty comes, and that beautiful thing you built is laying in rubble. That's where people give up and quit, because that's really frustrating. So we got to quit doing that in all kinds of areas of our lives, but in marriage in particular, in, in what we're dealing with today, okay? Someone recently told me of a conversation that they overheard in a workplace. So the subject was the recent divorce of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Uh, just a little bit of backstory in case you don't know. Uh, they lived together 10 years and were married for two and then divorced. Okay? So the people discussing this were saying that if the two richest and arguably most beautiful people in the world, right, if they can't make a marriage work, what hope do the rest of us schmucks have? That, that, was, that was their line of thinking, and this was not satirical. This was, this was their actual commentary on what was going on. This, that's where their head went, okay? What hope do the rest of us have if they can't make it work? <clears throat> now, first of all, I just want to say to, to not be insensitive, I sincerely hope that the two of them seek and find the Lord in the midst of this difficult time in their life, uh, and we should pray for them, because ultimately if they do uh, and begin to speak openly about the grace of God in their life, they could have incredible influence for the kingdom, and, and I don't like to see anybody hurt, and I'm sure they're hurting, so I, I don't want to forget that. However, just for the sake of example, this example exposes a problem with the way that many of us think. Many people believe if they marry an attractive person and have successful careers, buy a house and a couple cars and have some kids, that they will have fulfillment and joy. It's like a math equation. Marry somebody hot, make some money, get some nice cars, get a decent house, have a couple kiddos, bing, bang, boom, right? I did it, all right? The truth is, this example of this relationship that's kind of in the public eye and countless other examples like it should shake us from that delusion. You understand what I'm saying? That... <laughs> If we believe that, we're wrong, and we have a bunch of like real-life tangible examples that would, we could point to and say, well, that obviously isn't true. 
Now, the people that were having this conversation, it seems that for those folks, it was doing just that. It was shaking them out of maybe any idealized version they had of, of marriage, and, and they ended up on the other end of the spectrum at despair, saying, well, if they can't make it work, then what hope do any of the rest of us have? But the problem is that their answer was then to assume that marriage is hopeless. Instead of maybe taking a look instead at what it really takes for one to flourish. And that's what I want us to look at. Now, we are going to seek to answer the question, what is the point of marriage? That's much of what our time is going to be spent doing today. But our question is going to have a different tone than, than the folks that we're asking it in, in this conversation. Instead of implying with the question that marriage is a hopelessly outdated tradition, we're going to genuinely explore how the God who created marriage would answer the question. Okay, so it's okay for us to ask, what is the point of marriage? But I'm not saying that in, in a kind of sarcastic way to say, well, then uh, why would anybody mess with that? I'm, I'm asking what is the point of marriage because I believe God has an answer. And I want to know that to even begin to talk about the rest of what we could talk about when it comes to marriage. God, what were you thinking when you cooked this thing up? Like, it'd be good for me to know that. Right? Amen. So to answer this, the, the, what the point of marriage is, we, we must first ask, so if we want to know what the point of marriage is, we need to first ask, what is marriage? And that might be something we assume everybody knows and understands. I, I think we need to take a little time on it, though. I, I believe that this quote from Tim Keller gives us a great starting point for answering this question from a biblical perspective. So try to hang with me on this. Uh, this brother's kind of academic in, in the way he speaks, but if we get this, it's going to help us, okay? Here's what he says. In sharp contrast with our culture... The Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. <clears throat> Since I had to clear my throat, that left room for you to give an amen right there. That's a good word. Thank you, Tim Keller. It is fundamentally action more than emotion. Okay. But in talking this way, there is a danger of falling into the opposite error that characterized many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life, and so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interest. By contrast, contemporary Western societies make the individual's happiness the ultimate value, and so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. Is the covenant. The first and most important thing to understand about marriage is that it is a covenant. We know this because in Malachi 2 it is spoken of this way, as well as the way Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19, uh, as he's quoting Genesis 2, and because Ephesians 5 compares the relationship between husbands and wives to the relationship between Christ and the church. And that relationship is based solely upon the good covenant of God. And so that's how we know marriage is a covenant. Now, let's just be honest, we don't use the word covenant a whole lot in our everyday language, and that's because it wouldn't apply really to a lot of things. Um, there's only a few things it does apply to, like God's relationship with us and, and our relationship with our spouses. Um, so the fact that we don't use it a lot leads to some confusion as to what it is. And so um, I think oftentimes covenant is confused with contract. We think those words are interchangeable, and they're really not. And it's super important to understand the distinctions, okay? So contracts, how do contracts work? A contract is typically motivated by you wanting to get something, right? So you sign a contract for a house, right? You're wanting to buy the house. You sign a contract to lease a car. You're trying to get a hold of that car. Normally a contract has to do with a, a kind of a, a quid pro quo. Uh, you do something, I do something. That's what contracts are, typically look like. Most of the time they are made for a, a limited period of time, okay? So there's a term on a contract most of the time. Uh, they, they, they are normally what's happening is it's laying out conditional promises. So if you pay me $300 a month, I'll let you drive my car. 
right? This is the dealership talking. So if, if you stop paying your $300 a month, guess what? I'm sending the tow truck to get my car, right? That's, that's how that works. So there's conditional promises. Yes, I'll pay the $300. Yes, you'll let me drive this car away. If either of us break that, then we're out and we're going to have issues, right? So, uh, and oftentimes contracts also give terms for release from the contract if someone fails, up to, fails to hold up their end, right? So there's conditional promises, there's a term limit, um, and, and there's, there's always a way that if, if one or the other person messes us up, there's a way to get out, a release uh, clause, so to speak. So, okay, why is that different than a covenant, and why does it matter? First, why is it different than a covenant? Okay, a covenant... And how do we get this information? Well, we strictly are looking at how it is God has dealt with us in terms of covenant. God has cut covenant with us through Christ. Okay, so what do we learn from that? What does that look like? Well, covenants then are entered into not to secure your position in a transaction, but completely and solely for the good of the other. Right? So you're not, you're not going to a car dealership and signing a contract with them to give them $300 a month just because you want to bless them. Right? Is that right or wrong? You're not going to make a covenant with the car dealership. I see your guys' sales are down. I just want to give you $300 a month. No, keep the car. This is just for you. Right? It's different. Is that different? It's different. Okay? Covenants are solely for the good of the other. Um, they have unconditional promises. I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter what you do. Okay? That's different than a contract. Uh, and they don't have escape clauses. Covenants forever, okay? That's why um, God has said, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, and that's forever. And what I'm working towards is an eternity with you forever. It's forever language. That's why when we stand before God and we make a marriage covenant, it's why we say things like, till death do us part, okay? That's what covenant looks like. Now, um, you know, we spoke, we spoke of these folks that, that are asking the question, what then is the point of marriage? Why would, why would someone get married? Based And honestly, if you, if you think about what I just said, that a marriage is a covenant, and we're going we're gonna to drill down more on how our covenant with a, a spouse looks like the covenant that, that God has made with us through Christ, you begin to understand what that looks like, it kind of gets crazier and crazier, right? Because you're talking about entering into this agreement with another person where I'm going to unconditionally promise to love you. I'm going to stick with you forever. It's going to be about me serving you, not you serving me, right? This, this is starting, starting to sound a, a little bit crazy. And we are not the first generation to question uh, the sanity of marriage. If marriage is a covenant, and that means we are committing to lifelong love and unconditional sacrificial service to another person, that is a hard thing to accept. That is a serious deal, is it not? I mean, that's weighty. It's, it's weighty at the bare minimum, okay? And, and so I'm, I'm telling you, we're not the first people to, and it's not just in 2016 where people started going, hmm, is this worth it, okay? Interestingly, in Matthew 19, you, sh you should go look at this later, uh, some people stand up and, and they're trying to trap Jesus up, right? So they ask him this question, well, what about divorce, okay? And, and Jesus hearkens back to Genesis 2, talks about the fact that God put Adam and Eve together, and his, his closing statement is, what, what God has put together, let no man separate. Okay, so that's what Jesus' comment is in, in their question to divorce. So, of course, they pipe back at him, well, what about Moses? He, Moses said, if we just give him a certificate of divorce, we can send him away. And Jesus said, well, let me tell you, the reason that was like that then is because your hearts were hard, and God was in a process of dealing with his people and bringing them to the, the fullness of understanding of what his character is like. And guess what? Now I'm here. And I'm here to be the full revelation of the character and the love of God. And we're about eternal covenants up there. Okay? So this is how it goes. What God has put together, let no man separate. Now, here's what's really interesting. Okay? It wasn't just the guys trying to trap Jesus up that were, like, taken aback by this statement. Because his disciples then pull him aside. And here's the disciples' comment. This is the guys with Jesus. They're on Team Jesus. They got Team Jesus jerseys, and they're in. This is their comment to Jesus talking about what God has put together, let no man separate, okay? They say, Jesus, if this is what marriage is like, then it would be better not to marry, right? So they actually understand what he's saying. The weight of the statement has set down upon them, and they're calculating out, okay, if that's true, then it'd just be better not to marry. That's, that's where they landed on it right there at that point, okay? Now we need to ask ourselves, why 
Is this their response? Why is this the way they responded? The, the reason why they responded that way is because like many today, they haven't yet understood the answer to the question. What is the point of marriage is the same as the question, what is the point of life? The answer to the question, what is the point of marriage, is the same as the answer to the question, what is the point of life? The quote that I read you earlier points out the fact that culture shapes greatly what people think about marriage, right? That's what what Brother Keller was taking us through. He said, in ancient societies, family was the highest value. And so loyalty to family and service to family, that was what it was about. And so that's why this, this guy's son and this guy's daughter, you know, say we were rivaling clans, these two would marry, that would make peace between them, and then we can bring our herds together, they can all breed, woo, right? Now everyone's more prosperous. But they would use marriages to do that. And so that son and that daughter, essentially, there, there wasn't a big question of, do I love them? Do I like them? Have I met them? Right? Like all they knew was, this is going to serve my family. And so in that tradition and the way that worked, that, that was fine for them, okay? And so that's, that's kind of representing one extreme, but culture shaped that. That's the way things were. And he says on the other side of the deal, you have in, in, a, in a current kind of westernized idea of marriage, it's very much about emotion. It's very much about romance. It's, we, we couldn't even conceive of being that dutiful to anybody, much less our families, and marrying someone simply for the benefit of the larger group. And so you've, culture shapes very much the way we look at marriage. So it's not static, right? The, the, the kind of the values that surround it. There are eternal principles, though, and that's what we're digging for, okay? So uh, a, a recent poll of Americans yielded these answers to the question, what are the most important reasons to get married? Okay, so through this, we're going to see a little bit of our cultural lens the question of the poll asked people, what are the most important reasons to get married? Okay? This is where we're at. So, number one, number one answer was love. Period. Okay? What do they mean when they say that? We'll, we'll get to that in a second. The second thing was making a lifelong commitment. Okay? Doing pretty good. Companionship was third. These are reasons, top reasons people say for getting married. Having children... And the fifth was financial stability. So love, making a lifelong commitment, companionship, having children, and financial stability. Uh, just so we know, that these polls asked married and unmarried people the questions, and both married and unmarried people put them in the same order, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, most of those sound pretty good, honestly, and they line up at least to some degree, with reasons that the Bible would give for marriage. Um, A couple caveats that I would just say. I get why people say financial stability, because they're thinking like, you know, two apartments, one house, you know, kind of bringing two incomes together, one life, and and that can lead to financial stability. Um, I'm just not always sure that manifests the way people think it will, especially when kids come on the scene. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, man. If you've had a kid, you know that they eat a lot, and they grow fast, and you've got to put clothes on them because that's the law, so. Uh, <laughs> and feeding them also is required. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, don't know, I, don't know that, I don't know that marriage always yields the financial stability people think it does, and that, that to me, if I'm just being honest, sounds like the shallowest of the reasons. I was a little disappointed that made top five, but, you know, honestly, I, f- I felt like we did better than I expected in in researching this. Um, The other thing I would say is, I I think when most people say love, that top reason for getting married, what what they mean there is emotional connection and affection. That's what, I think that's what they're probably talking about in most cases. That's, of course, not how the Bible defines love. Um, The Bible defines love um, as, as sacrificial commitment, right? It tells us to uh, in, in 1 John 3, 16, that, that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So the, the picture we see at the cross of Christ actually embodies what it is uh, God means when he says love. And so it's, it is more action than emotion, uh, and it is deeper than just kind of the, the, the feelings of affection and, um, and, and satisfaction that, that come from kind of the emotional connection. That's not to say by any means 
that that emotional connection and affection is a bad thing. It's a good thing. I just want to make the distinction that I think when most people say love as the first priority or, or top reason why they think people should get married, they don't have in mind when they say that uh, selfless sacrificial service in the likeness of Christ. Would you agree? That's probably the case. Okay, so most, most people when they say love, and that's why for us, <clears throat> we do a lot of work around here in, in trying to, uh, in, a, in a gentle way, for our culture, both model and speak accurately about love and, and redefine love to our culture in light of the scriptures because it's really important. The reason why we believe it's so super important for you to understand what love really is is because uh, somebody stood up one day and said, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, right? And he had some stuff to say. He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if the greatest commandment, like the number one thing I need to focus on as a follower of Jesus is to love God and to love others, <clears throat> I need to know what love is. God, what do you mean? Is, do you mean emotional affection and connection like most of our culture? Or, or is, there something, is there something deeper going on there? And obviously, a thorough look through the scriptures would lead us to the idea that it's, it is much deeper than emotion. Uh, the, the greatest affection, the deepest emotional connection falls short of what God means when he says love. Um, because love is defined, love is exemplified in the cross of Christ. Selfless service and sacrifice uh, unmatched in all of history. And that's our model. <clears throat> that is uh, our definition, okay? So amen. Um, so here's the point, though. Neither of those was really the point. I just wanted to give you those caveats. The point is, all of those things, none of those things listed, top five reasons why people say are important to get married when polled in the U.S., they're all good things, okay? But for a follower of Jesus, none of them can be the first and most important reason for marriage, the point of marriage must be the same as our point for existence. It should be the driving force behind all of our decisions. And that is the desire to obey God and to bring him glory. The only motivation acceptable at the deepest core of who we are for why we live, move, breathe, exist, do anything, and that's include marry somebody, is to obey God and to bring him glory. Now, Jesus also said in that Matthew 19 situation where they were challenging him about divorce and whatever else, and his disciples said, hey, well, if that's true, like if, if marrying somebody means we gotta, we got to love them the way God loves us, wow, like maybe it'd be better not to be married then. Thank you. Uh, and so the, the, the reality here is, Jesus' response to that is, you know, that I realize this is a hard statement, and some people aren't going to get it, and some people aren't going to like it. I'm paraphrasing, but on the, the whole idea, guys, let's just, I just want to set the table with this. I get the fact that for me to tell you the whole point of your existence, including marriage, including having kids, including all of the big moments in your life, is to obey God and bring him glory, that sounds a little bit insane in our culture. Most people would label me uh, fanatical, overzealous, um, Pick all your synonyms for those to talk that way, okay? That's fine, but if we're going to really read what God has revealed to us in his word as far as these things are concerned, there is no other possible conclusion. Every part of who I am is for God and for his glory. I was created for his glory. Trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve. Why did God create humanity, period? Because he needed us? No. What are we entitled to? Nothing, right? <laughs> we do have this beautiful bonus that we happen to be the height of God's creation and the one thing that he decided to pour all of his affection and love into, so that's pretty sweet, right? So we have a lot of reasons to be grateful, but not a lot of reasons to feel entitled because God is God and we are not, and we were made for his glory. So that means the reason we breathe is for his glory. The reason we get married or not get married is for his glory. So it makes us ask different questions before we do the thing and while we're in the thing. That's why I talked to you in the beginning. Some of you, 
marriage isn't even on the radar. You need to be thinking about this now. Some of you, marriage is really close and it's on the radar. You need to be thinking about this now. Some of you have been married for a really long time. You need to be thinking about this now. It applies to all of us right where we're at. Because these things are easy to forget. Because is there not a vicious and adamant counter message always being preached to you? Do you understand what I say when I say what I mean when I say that? The reason it sounds so crazy for me to tell you the same reason, the same point of marriage is the, is, the, is the exact same as the point of life, and that's to obey God and to be about his glory. The reason that sounds so insane is because we've been indoctrinated for a real long time with this completely opposite message that says, you need to be about you. You need to be about what makes you happy. You need to pursue what you think is going to lead to the greatest fulfillment of your passions and dreams and all of that. And listen, God is about you chasing after passions and dreams. That's great, but it has to be in the context of and, and, and fueled by this ultimate idea. It's an, it's an order of desires. It's an order of, of priorities. And ultimately, all that we do needs to be run through the grid of how is this leading to and how is this reflecting the glory of God? Because he is God. Amen. So because of that, we do singleness, relationships, marriage, and sex differently because we don't live for ourselves. When the disciples heard Jesus teach what covenant marriage looks like, they essentially said, when the disciples heard Jesus teach what covenant marriage looks like, here here was their essential answer. Well, forget it then. It's better to be single. Much of our culture today is saying, forget marriage. It's better to be single. But the disciples then and our culture now had one thing in common that makes this conclusion understandable. I can understand why the disciples came to that conclusion when they heard Jesus teach about what covenant marriage really looks like. And I can understand why our culture today, for many of them, have come to the conclusion, forget about it, forget about marriage, it's not that important, it's better to just stay single. they They have one thing in common. And what do you think that is, Love City? What is the one thing in common that the disciples, Matthew 19, Jesus in the middle of his teaching, preaching, miracle ministry, he gets questioned about divorce, gives this answer, talks about covenant marriage, don't take apart something that God has put together, and and they're like, whoa, that's really heavy, so it's better to not even get married. That's their answer. What do they have in common with many, many, many people today in 2016 as they look at the same subject? What, What do those two groups have in common? Here's what they have in common. The disciples then and many people now, they did not then and they do not now understand the beauty of the gospel. You see, those disciples didn't, they hadn't yet seen that Savior King that they were following around, the the doer of miracles, that preacher that preached with authority from on high. They had not yet seen him. This man they had come to love and were willing to serve. They had not yet seen him submit himself to the authorities and be tortured and carry his own crossbar up a hill and be nailed to it and mutilated and tortured. They had not yet seen him spill his blood. Perfect, sinless Jesus. They had not yet seen him give up everything to express to the world in the most full and beautiful picture ever painted the character and the love and the mercy and the long-term plan of God. They did not yet understand the gospel. They did not yet know that Jesus was going to solve the entire sin problem by sacrificing himself in our place. They did not yet know the love of God was going to be shown forth in an undeniable way at Calvary. They also didn't know that after they took him down and they wrapped him up in burial clothes and they put him in the grave, they didn't understand yet that three days later the glory of God was going to shone forth out of that tomb when the stone rolled away and Jesus rose up out of the grave and defeated sin and death and hell forever. They had not yet seen the fully manifest glory of this story of redemption that God is working 
They didn't yet understand the gospel. They didn't have a reference point for even understanding the beauty of covenant and the fact that if it's going to be fulfilled in our marriages or from God, it's going to take supernatural power way beyond what we have. The disciples didn't see the gospel yet. And many people are arriving to the conclusion they are about covenant marriage today because they don't see the gospel yet. They don't understand what love really looks like. They don't understand that the power of God is involved in this thing. And that a covenant marriage doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean there's no problems. It doesn't mean every day is a honeymoon. It doesn't mean any of that. But it means that there is an absolute determination by the grace and power of God to love each other through anything and to never give up. And it's going to be by the power of God that we accomplish that. But they don't even have a reference point for seeing that that's possible. They don't have a reference point for understanding what covenant love looks like. And so there's, there's no attraction for them. It just looks like trouble. It just looks like drudgery, and it looks like a bunch of uh, work and, 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 and no joy, but it, it doesn't really look that way when you understand the beauty of the gospel, when you understand that God is involved in the thing. None of us, zero, I don't care how amiable you are, I don't care how nice you are, I don't care how sweet your personality is from a natural bent, you will not fulfill or even come close to the requirements that a covenant marriage would, would require of a believer without the power of God. Let me make that clear. We need God's grace and we need the power of his Holy Spirit involved in our marriages or they will not in any way come close to reflecting the covenant love of God shown forth through Christ. We need God's help. Everyone cool with that? I know you're sweet. You're the sweetest one around. But you ain't sweet enough not to love perfectly. Not to love perfectly and selflessly all the time. Even with God's help, you're not going to pull that off. There's still going to be opportunity for forgiveness and redemption and the gospel shown forth and displayed in that process in our marriages. Do you see the gospel... God gets glory and the gospel gets pushed forth, not only when we love each other selflessly, not only when we are willing to lay our lives down and serve each other in a sacrificial way. That, that is definitely part of the package. But another beautiful part of it is when we mess up and we forgive each other quickly. When we mess up, but we, grace comes and rushes in and we're quick to reconcile. And we're willing to work with each other and not against each other in those situations. The reason the disciples said forget marriage, it's better to be single. The reason why so many people today are saying forget marriage, that it's not worth it, is because they don't understand the gospel. The gospel changes the way we view everything. Everything. Ephesians 5 tells us that when we don't just have marriages, but we have a but we have marriage covenants. I think that's important for us to weave into our language, you guys. I, I, know, I know I annoy some of you because I'm picky sometimes about language. But there's, language is so important. And there's times when there's no other way to make a distinction. And so a bunch of people have marriages. God's people are supposed to have marriage covenants. I think it would be helpful if we use that language when we talk about these things. There, there needs to be some distinction, doesn't there, between Two people get in a room with a bunch of their friends. Everyone dresses up nice. They say some stuff to each other, smash cake in each other's face. Everybody gets drunk, and then we do our best not to hate each other for the rest of our life. There needs to be a distinction between that and what God's people do in coming together and truly because they understand the depth of the commitment they're making in light of the covenant that God's made to us, and they stand full well, open-eyed, understanding. They're signing up that day to die. And to, to put someone else's preferences above their own for the rest of their life. To selflessly and, and sacrificially serve somebody else and to love them the way Jesus has loved them. When somebody open-eyed walks into that situation and stands before God and stands before a group of people with a witness to hear them say, Yes, I understand all of that and I'm doing it. There's a difference in those two situations. One is, is a marriage. Maybe. 
One's a marriage covenant. A covenant's been cut. God was involved in the thing. Right? For so many people today, there, there's, there's been such a, a desacralizing of these things, such a, such, such a disgusting viewpoint where, where now, for, for so many people, comments like, marriage is just a piece of paper. Well, you know what? It, it, on, on the legal side of things, I guess you're right. Like, if there is no God, sure, mar- marriage is just a piece of paper. And ultimately, if there is no God, I agree. Why get married? Here's the major problem, though. There's a God. (laughs) And he's the ruler of everything. And he's the one who created us, and he's the one that gave us the good gift of marriage, and he's the one who defines the parameters for which we engage in it. He's the one that has built the thing and given it boundaries and breathed upon it and made it beautiful instead of terrible. There is a God, and a marriage is a covenant. A marriage where God is involved and two people are entering into that thing, not just because it meets some need they have, not just because they have some desperate compulsion, not because of all of the myriad of reasons why so many people stand in a room together and say stuff to each other, dress up nice. There's all kinds of reasons why you would do that. But when two people, for these reasons, I believe that joining myself in covenant to this person is the way I'm going to best glorify God with my life. Woo! Can you imagine what marriages would look like if they started with that type of conviction? Can you imagine what marriages would look like if we woke up every single day and asked ourselves, how is it that I'm going to glorify God in serving and loving and laying down my life for this spouse? Woo! What would they look like? How much more would the God of the universe be glorified if, if his followers, if his disciples grasp these things? And if, if, if we even did it more often than not, right? Like I said, we're not going to nail this perfectly. We're going to need God's grace to even try at it. Because if it isn't for God's grace and the revelation that the gospel brings of the beauty of covenant and the power that it has, if it wasn't for God being involved in it, we couldn't even try for it because we'd be sitting with everybody else, blinders on our eyes, saying, that sounds insane, Because without God in the picture, it is. And it does. I agree. So Ephesians 5 tells us when we, that, that, that we don't just have marriages as God's people, but we have marriage covenants. And we strive with the help of the Holy Spirit to model our marriage covenants after God's covenant with us through Jesus. Ephesians 5 is, is, is essential for us seeing this picture and understanding that, that part of what God's intention in marriage is, it's not just for our joy. That's part of it, right? I believe God, as a good, perfect father, knew it was gonna be, there was going to be joy and companionship, and there was going to be children, and there was going to be um, emotional uh, affection and connection. These are all bonus things, right? These are the five reasons we give for, for getting married when we're asked in America, right? Maybe there is even financial stability. I'll give you that one too. You can have all of it, but these are bonuses. These are good things God does give us, but this, this is not the, the reason. Part of what God was doing in establishing marriage all the way at the beginning is he knew that part of the way, ultimately, Fast forward to 2016, that God's people being in the midst of a race of folks that have become convinced that the highest value is their own personal fulfillment, that one of the ways we were going to have the best shot at countering that message, because we can, we can yell about it all we want, but pe- when, when people have blinders over their eyes, right? We, we started out this sermon series talking about the, the, the thick veil that sits over the eyes of people all the way to this day. You can talk gospel language, and if somebody's, if somebody's still blind to that degree, they're not even going to get it. But one of the ways we can begin to pull that veil back and begin to get them to at least be curious about what might be going on in the lives of people that are followers of Jesus is when our marriages operate like a covenant instead of a contract. When you got two people that are selflessly, sacrificially loving each other, laying their lives down for each other, when, they are, when they're precious to each other and they're not looking to just get something from each other, when, when their love grows instead of diminishes with the years, these are, this is different than what it looks like for most people because when God's not involved, covenant is not understood and God's glory is not the highest and first motivation for the thing to begin with, it's not going to go well, no matter how good the facade is. 
Because you just can't, you can't make things that were made for something do something else, right? Humans were made for relationship with God and for God's glory, right? It's, it's like saying, uh, you know, why, why can't I drive my car down to the river and use it like a boat? Because it's a car. It wasn't made for that, right? And a bunch of humans are trying to do something, man, that they just weren't made to do. They're trying hard. And most of them are exhausted and frustrated. And half of them are mad at God over the frustration and the exhaustion. And one of the gentle, beautiful ways that we can, that we can put this message out there that, that God's power is real, that, that God's covenant with us is real, that there, there is something supernatural in the world, that, that, that the humanistic framework is, is not right. One of the ways we can speak against that is by our marriages reflecting the covenant that Jesus made with us. When we're selfless and loving, when we sacrifice, we lay ourselves down. When we do for our spouses what Jesus did for us, it preaches. Are you excited about the thought of your marriage preaching? should. It's a beautiful thing. Many of your marriages do. I know a lot of you. Many of your marriages do preach, and I'm really, really thankful for it. But let's not settle. Let's keep pushing. Let's keep asking God for greater grace and more of his power so that our covenant marriages reflect that greatest and most beautiful covenant cut between us and Christ. When we have the help of the Holy Spirit to model our marriage covenants after God's covenant with us through Jesus, it is perhaps the most vibrant possibility we have to be a holy reflection to the world of God's kindness, goodness, love, and mercy. If you've been here for this sermon series, you've probably picked up on a pattern. We've talked about singleness, we've talked about relationships and pursuit of marriage, and now we're talking about marriage. And every single time we talk about any of those stages, the ultimate thing we're going to draw you back to is in your singleness. How is your singleness bringing glory to God? If you're in a pursuit of marriage, how is your pursuit of marriage bringing glory to God? If you're married, how is your marriage bringing glory to God? Because if, if the very point of our existence is to bring glory to, to God, then that grid has to be brought over and applied to every one of these issues and then all the rest of the issues that comprise our life it can be really difficult to keep this in focus though, right? Can it? Let's be honest. Sometimes there's a whole bunch of other factors that creep in and take precedence over this. But that's part of why God has called us to gather like this, to open this book and let the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power and the truth of his word come and flush away from us, washing our minds, right? With, with the water of the word, renewing our minds, bringing us back to this place where, where we can focus again and we can push forward by God's grace. Um, we, we, need, we need reminded. I know, I know that when I say all of your existence and all of your relationships and everything that you do ultimately needs to be run through the grid of obedience to God and, and reflecting glory uh, to him, um, into the world for him, I, I know that the, the, the tendency is for that to really sound like all duty and no fun. It's like, man, I don't, I don't get to focus on anything I want, right? It's, it's kind of like that. It, it's tempted to see that it, it brings in this potential for like this false dichotomy, this, this, this um, conflict that isn't really there. Because we just we, the, the first premise we have to believe for, for this to for that to not be a roadblock for us is that if if these things are true, okay, if God is God, if God is loving, if God is a perfect Father, if God created us, if God created marriage, and if God gave us all the good design for these things, if those things are true, and I think most of us in here would agree that at least those things are true, if you put all that in the batter and you mix it up, the pancakes that you get out is a really awesome life. Do you see what I'm saying? Because if God is loving, 
He's not going to tell you to do something in regards to marriage that's not going to lead to joy for you. And what we have to believe is that God is absolutely what he's doing when he gives us parameters, when he gives us a goal, when he says, make your existence, make your singleness, your pursuit of marriage, make your marriage about my glory. What, what we have to understand is because that's what we were made to do, that is actually where we're going to have the greatest joy. Every single time that's a roadblock for us, it's because, we've, it's because we're cars trying to be boats. Stop. You have tires, not a rudder. Okay? That's, you, we got to settle that in our minds. If God made us for fellowship, relationship with him, and ultimately for his glory, then us living our lives in relationship with him and for his glory is where we're going to have the greatest joy. So I know it sounds like a lot of duty, but it's just because we have to get that, we have to get that right in our heads. Oh, oh, I'm a car. Then, then driving on a road is going to be fun. There's going to be joy in that. It's actually going to be a lot more fun than all these years I've tried to float the river. <laughs> Any cars in here tried to float the river? Go ahead, be honest. Okay, the rest of you have lost the analogy, I guess. Because all of you at some point <laughs> have done something other in your life than being completely and totally about fellowship with God and bringing glory to his name. Is that right? I'll, I'll redefine the analogy so we can all come back to the table. <laughs> Everybody's like, did I, like, did I come to a boat show? I don't know what I'm, what, what are we talking about? Praise God. Here, here's the bottom line. I'm just, I'm just trying, I'm trying my hardest to tell you the truth. And the truth is, it sounds like a real nose to the grindstone thing for all of our life to be set apart, to obey God and be about his glory. But when that's what you were made to do, it's actually and truly the only place you're going to find the joy and fulfillment you're desperately searching for elsewhere and oftentimes frustrated and exhausted that you're not finding it. Does that make sense? It's the truth, guys. May we be a people who build our life upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word. May we be a people who do not view our lives or our marriages through the lens of self-fulfillment. But may we instead be a people who experience the uninhibited and beautiful joy of living love-filled, sacrificial lives as holy reflections of our perfect God and Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for the timeless wisdom of your word. We thank you, God, that you do care more about why we do what we do than, than just what we do. Thank you that you have uh, all the wisdom and the knowledge that it takes to direct us in these things. Thank you that anything you, you cause us to do, anything you direct us to do, any, any commandments that you give us, any restrictions that you give us, it, it doesn't matter how we feel about it in the moment. If we really pull back and understand who you are and what you're about and, and what your overall plan and goal is, we know that if you ask us to do something, it's going to lead to joy and fulfillment. And if you ask us not to do something, we're going to avoid pain and suffering. So thank you for loving us so much. Thank you so much for being patient with us as we work through these things. God, some of us have insisted over and over and over again that we have a better way. And we've tried it. And some of us are wore out and exhausted from it. And we just thank you for being patient and long-suffering with us being faithful to your promise to never leave us nor forsake us, even if we're bullheaded and stubborn. Thank you that you are gracious and merciful. Thank you that you forgive us when we confess sin. Thank you that you're walking through a process with us of sanctification. I thank you that you don't, you don't come and change us and make us your children and then expect us to be perfect right away. I thank you, God, that you're willing to slowly, like a good father, teach us and train us, walk with us, and give us bit by bit what we need to continue uh, to think and act and, 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 and speak and, and just be more like you. Thank you that you are working this process of conforming us into the image of King Jesus, your precious son. Thank you. Thank you that you deal with us. Thank you 
that you treat us like sons and daughters. Thank you that you discipline and chastise us. Thank you that you're merciful and patient when you do it and not harsh. Oh God, may we believe you. You've proven yourself trustworthy. May we worship you with our trust. And may we glorify you with absolutely every part of our life. And especially with our marriages. We need your help for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.